Towards the end of Victor Hugo's historical novel, Les Miserables, and sorry for my French, for those of you who speak it, I do not. Uh, so towards the end of, of Victor Hugo's historical novel, novel, Les Miserables, one of the main characters is thorn by what he perceives to be a moral dilemma. And he throws himself into the river Seine. His name was Javert, and he was a man of the law. Formerly a guard at a prison, and later a, a police inspector, Javert builds his identity around the perception of himself as a strict law-abiding man and of the law as the necessary rule of the land and rule of all within it. And as part of that identity, identity or arguably as part of building and reinforcing that identity to himself, maybe more than anything else, Javert had spent decades pursuing an ex-convict called Jean Valjean. And I feel like there's something wrong about me telling this story without singing. Are you ready? No, I'm not, I'm not going to sing. I will spare you all the agony, but... And I also don't intend to, to tell you the whole story of Les Miserables. Uh, there's a book, there's a musical, and there's even a movie if you want to go into that story and hear all of it. But I will give a bit of a spoiler here without giving too many details because I'm going towards the end of the story here when Javert, after he had been pursuing Jean Valjean most of his life and pursuing him most of his life believing that he himself was an uncompromising man of the law and that Valjean was a hopelessly a lawbreaker and therefore a man of unworthy character. That's his worldview. Once a lawbreaker, always a lawbreaker. But the thing is, through those years of going relentlessly after pursuing relentlessly Jean Valjean, through those years, Javert had again and again repeatedly witnessed that Valjean, even though he did indeed break the law a couple of times again, still that he repeatedly showed himself to be a man capable of showing mercy and kindness at great cost to himself. And the thing is that now Javert himself had his life saved by the mercy of Valjean. And the moral dilemma, as Javert sees it, is that he cannot bring himself to turn Valjean into the authorities. But neither can he live with himself as a lawbreaker if he does not turn him over. So he throws himself into the sand. And reading this left me thinking, what, what the hell, dude? Like, there's got to be a better way of solving this. There's got to be a better way of solving this. It's an extreme measure. Right? But of course, it has to be. 
It has to be because Javert is part of this historical novel of epic proportions where Victor Hugo is displaying the moral complexity of life and he's displaying it with the rawness and with and fittingly he's displaying it without neatly tying all of the knots because you know life is full of loose ends and knots that we can't quite untie. So being something of a caricature in the way in which, in which he serves the novel, Javet's character in this dynamic with Jean Valjean, he is actually quite effective at exposing the cracks. Exposing the cracks. And this is what I mean. On the one hand, he exposes the cracks in the law. In the law as a, as a system and in the law as a code thing. As a hard and inflexible system, the law is quite incapable of dealing with the full complexity of life and death. And as a hard and inflexible system. It lacks the capability, the possibility of self-denial that is needed for such a thing as mercy. On the other hand, Jean Valjean is far from a perfect character, and neither is Javert. And as the story develops, the cracks in their own selves are exposed. Their incongruences, their failures, their abilities for violence. They are exposed and they are left in the open for us readers to try and deal with or in the least to learn to live with. And it is the inability to conciliate those cracks and somehow mend them over, right? to conciliate those cracks, the cracks in the law and the cracks in ourselves, it is that inability to conciliate them that so anguishes Javert that he throws himself into the rushing waters. It can be hard to give mercy, and it can be hard to receive mercy. And is there a way out of this? that doesn't end in death. St. Paul, the apostle, when writing to the followers of Christ in the province of Galatia, he has also been exposing the cracks. And if we thought that he was aiming all of his punches at the Javert-like characters, we will find today that that is not the case and that there is something much deeper going on. And I want to read with you today from Paul's letter to the Galatians from chapter 5, from verse 1 to 15. And I am reading from the NRSV, but we had a bit of a, of a struggle putting that translation up. What you have up there is the NIV, so you might notice a few changes in language, but that's fine, you'll get it anyway. Uh, 
and I'll read from verse 1 to verse 15. And it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Listen, I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Once again, I testify to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the entire law. You who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. You were running well. Who prevented you from obeying the truth? Such persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast leavens a whole batch of dough. I am confident about you in the Lord that you will not think otherwise. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. But my friends, why am I still being persecuted if I am still preaching circumcision? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would castrate themselves. For you were called to freedom brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. We have been spending time with the letter for the, the letter of Paul to the Galatians for of, over a month now. And uh, we have been talking a lot about the problem of Torah-keeping enforcement. And I want to give you all a little recap for the sake of those of us who maybe haven't been around and also for the sake of, of the context. And for those of you who have heard me talk about this a lot already, just hang on. It's always a good reminder. So what's the context to the letter of Paul to the Galatians? The, the letter to the Galatians is called so because Paul is writing to the followers of Christ that had gathered in what we today would call churches, gatherings of people, in the Roman province of Galatia. And Paul had, these churches had started from Paul's ministry. Paul had visited these areas, he had preached the gospel, people had believed, had started to gather, and had formed these fellowships, these churches. And then Paul went on with his travels, as he does. And after that, other teachers come from Jerusalem. And these teachers are what we might call hardcore Jewish legalists. And their thing is, they are arguing that in order for the Gentiles, non-Jews, in these communities to follow a Jewish Messiah, a Jewish Christ, they needed to, to assign to the whole package and become Jews themselves. Now, the province of Galatia is a province of majority non-Jewish people, what in the New Testament is often called Gentiles. So they are telling these congregations, you, all of you who are not Jews, have to follow the Torah rules and especially the rules that mark them explicitly off as Jews 
We're in circumcision and food purity laws. We're among the most important. So to become followers of Christ, you need to get circumcised. And you need to follow food purity laws along with plus, plus, plus. Paul's letter is addressing this and saying, you cannot enforce this on the, Jewish, on the non-Jewish believers. By doing that, you are doing an act of what we have been calling here an act of ungospeling, of making the good news something else than good news, and the sacrifice of Christ something less than what it is, something that it was not enough. And you are setting us a standard of belonging that has nothing to do with what Christ has done. And Paul is fighting this. Again, it's always worth remembering, Paul is not having issue with Jewish people following the Torah. He has taking issue with enforcing Torah following on non-Jewish believers as a requirement for belonging to the church of Christ. Saying, if you don't do this, you're not in. You're out, you're not. And he's saying, no, you don't understand what's going on. You can't do that. And throughout this letter, we have seen Paul hitting hard, right? Hitting hard on these teachers and on this teaching. And in this context, it is not surprising, also given Paul's own story, right? Paul had been a hardcore Jewish legalist, right? Legalistic Jew or fundamentalistic Jew, right? But he had been met by Christ with such grace And he had seen the dawn of a new era. A new era in which both Jews and Gentiles would be brought before God together. As part of one family. And this is what is at risk. So in this context, it's not surprising that Paul's jabs, they had been mainly for the legalistic Jewish trend that he's opposing in this letter. And we might indeed be tempted to focus only on Paul's quite strong words for them when he says that he wishes that they would take their obsession with enforcing the law over the bodies of others and that they would go all the way with it on themselves. But Paul's main heart is not for crushing his opponents so much as it is for building up the church. For building up the church. And as he comes towards the end of his letter, he wants to make sure that the Galatians don't avoid one trap by falling into another. More than that, he wants them to go beyond merely keeping an eye for traps along the way and actually be attentive to how they walk as they go. So it's important to notice that Paul's not at all subtle suggestion uh, that the circumcision-obsessed legalistic uh, teachers would go ahead and castrate themselves to realize that that comes after his affirmation that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. So what counts for something, Paul? This is a natural question, right? What counts for something? And what counts for something, Paul argues, is the life of freedom, the life of freedom shaped by Christ. It is in 
anchored freedom, anchored on something other than ourselves. And it is because it is anchored on something other than ourselves that it is indeed freedom, is what Paul argues. For you were called, he says from verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. But through love, become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you, however, bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. You were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. And many Bible translations stick to a more literal translation here. So that it reads only, so that it reads only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge the flesh. The problem is we don't have the same framework, right, for understanding what Paul is talking about when he talks about flesh. And we start making all sorts of other connections, right? And I find the NRSV's translation particularly helpful because I think it more easily allows us to perceive the both, both sides of the coin that he's addressing. When he's talking about indulging the flesh. Because he's addressing both well, he's addressing on one side self-indulgence as what we might call unhinged selfishness. And maybe this is what we more immediately associate when we say, uh, do not indulge the flesh, right? And next week, we're going to talk about the very well-known passage of the fruits of the Spirit, right? And the fruits of the flesh. And... What we would call unhinged selfishness is this freedom, which is a freedom that serves only the self at the expense and at the cost of the other. It's the notion of freedom in which whatever is to be done is to be done no matter what is around. Right? It is an utterly self-centered form of freedom that sees only the me and sees only the me in the now. And Paul is saying, I am not, in the, and again, as a Jew, he's saying, I am not defending complete disregard for what the law stands for. Right? Especially the law being as it was a framework for justice, right? a framework for life in the traditions of the Jews. Right? It's not and that's not what I'm defending. What I'm saying is do not go into, uh, to avoid the law into whatever, whatever goes, goes. Into a self-serving uh, way of living. But he is also pointing out to something else, which is that legalism is also a form of self-indulgence. The strict following of the law and enforcing it over others is also a form of self-indulgence. Hey, you have a word for the congregation, Darius? He's Spider-Man. Uh, 
the legalism in that sense. Why? Because it gives us control, right? We talked a bit about that last week as well. The temptation of legalism is that it is a system that allows us to control the checks. What goes and what doesn't go. Who's in and who doesn't, who's not in. And in that way, it pleases our own desire for control. And it gives us, we would like to think, control over the screening process. And in that sense, it is self-centered. It is another form of self-indulgence, of being able to please our own need for control. Our own need for control over ourselves, but especially our own need for control over the others. But what both of these things have in common, self-indulgence as unhinged selfishness and legalism as self-indulgence, is that they sacrifice the other for the sake of ourselves. They sacrifice the other for the sake of ourselves. On a commentary about this part of Galatians, uh, a professor called Amy Peeler writes something that I find illuminates this particularly well. She says, the wide focus of all the law in Leviticus, she's talking about how Paul addresses the law here, right? remains on the love of others in the community. She's addressing what Paul comes at here, right? The whole law is summed up in a single commandment. When he, as a Jew, says the whole law, he's talking about that, right? What's in Leviticus and the Pentateuch and all, all what, we, what the, Jew, the Jewish scripture, the part of the Jewish scripture which we call the Torah. The wide focus of all the laws in Leviticus remains on the love of others in the community, if they don't heed this admonition and use their freedom selfishly for their own flesh, it will result in the harming of the flesh of others. If they don't heed this admonition and use their freedom selfishly for their own flesh, it will resume in the harming of the flesh of others. So what then? How does Paul point towards a different sort of way? A different sort of, of going, of walking, of stepping. One that does not sacrifice and harm the other for the sake of the self. One that doesn't get lost in self-indulgence, whether that is by religious legalism or by unhinged self-serving license. Well, Paul does so by pointing to Christ, by pointing to the cross. And Paul argues the cross is an offense. It is an offense to both legalism and here he's talking to the Torah enforcing legalistic Jewish party and to unhinged lawlessness. And here he's addressing how many Jews would see the Gentiles, see the pagans, or maybe the temptation of turning our backs on everything that the law might point at with the excuse of avoiding its harshness. Right? And Paul says the cross is an offense. An offense to both 
legalism and to unhinged lawlessness. An offense to what we might call a prison of the self. Or to be more to Paul's point, it is an offense to all forms of self-serving abuses or self-indulgence. Going once more to verse 6, Paul has indeed suggested a way of going, of walking, of taking the next small and world-changing step when he says the only thing that counts is faith working through love. Faith working through love. Whether love is expressed in acts that Abide by the law or not, what counts is faith working through love. Sometimes that means breaking some laws, doesn't it? By the measures of the time and the system that he was operating within, Peter broke laws of feud purity when he sat down and ate with Gentiles and spent some days at the house of Cornelius. The disciples, depending on which framework you're putting on them, broke laws when they picked up corn on a Saturday. Jesus broke laws when he healed on a Saturday. And we could co-utter examples from history, couldn't we? Martin Luther King broke laws. And he has a great quote where he says that one who breaks an unjust law must do so Willingly and ready, willingly and ready to accept the consequences. And his point again was one of self-sacrifice. Christ is for Paul the mirror and the anchor for that kind of faith, for that kind of love, indeed for that kind of freedom. And he is the mirror. And the anchor, I said, but he's the mirror because he reflects the image of God. The image of God in its fullness and being God incarnate, he gives us a path to reflect the image of God in ourselves. And if we are to believe Christ to be God incarnate, God for us, then a freedom that mirrors God's own freedom is a freedom dedicated to serving others in love. Isn't that a mind-boggling thought? If we conceive God as truly God, with all the freedom that any being could have, and He exercises, and God exercises that freedom through self-sacrifice, in Christ for our sake, then whatever we might want to call freedom as we mirror Christ and mirror God, whatever we might want to call real freedom has to reflect that willingness, that step towards the other in self-sacrifice for the sake of togetherness, of redemption, of healing, for the sake of the other. And Christ is also the anchor. Also the anchor because he gives us a source of love and grace and mercy that is a source beyond ourselves. 
It relieves us of the unattainable need of figuring it all out and getting it all right. It frees us. It gives us the rest, the breath, the oxygen of forgiveness. And frees us from the asphyxiating need to figure it out ourselves. It gives us the rest of redemption. It gives us the rest of self-sacrificing love that gives deeper lives to ourselves and to the others. And it gives us, Christ gives us the rest of a body that is bigger than ourselves, than our own bodies. The rest of belonging to his body. This doesn't give us a ready answer to all our questions. This doesn't give us a new rigid framework that will now fit everything in reality. It gives us steps to take and someone to take them with. It gives us a way of moving in the spirit of love and forgiveness and it gives us a taste and a definition and a belonging to a freedom that can be life-giving to myself and to the others. What does freedom in Christ look like? If not a freedom that is expressed in love, made into reality, a faith made into reality through acts of love. It would be a lot easier, I think, if we could just hit one side or the other, right? If we could either say anything goes or nothing goes. But there's something else here. Christ saying, who goes with whom? And how are we coming together? For freedom, you were called. For freedom, we were called. I guess if the church dared to keep on asking, what does freedom in Christ mean? With every step we take. Maybe our history would look a bit different. Maybe our world would look a bit different. But then again, in the anchor of Christ, we are given the rest of forgiveness, the rest of redemption, the rest of the possibility of a new dawn. Where do we go from here? I think I'm actually glad that I don't have a one-size-fits-all answer. All I have is a Christ-loves-all answer. What are we going to do with that? Today and tomorrow will bring us the challenge. May the Lord 
keep you and be with you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you. To the days of darkness and despair and the days of hope that he may bring you peace. So go in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the world and serve each other. Serve the Lord joyfully. Amen.